Welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Mumley. And we are back with a fresh new episode with a wonderful poem by the late, great Toni Morrison. It's one of the saddest ones of, I think, of my life learning of her passing and i actually didn't know she had published five poems in her life um she's mostly known as a novelist as i'm sure you know she's a Nobel laureate um beloved the bluest eye sula uh song of solomon she's famously said she detested being called a poetic writer she did indeed and so I thought, all right, it'd be a little not okay to bust out a passage from Beloved and talk about its lyrical qualities, of which there are many. Um, undeniably. Undeniably. But then I found that, in fact, she published um, five poems in 2002 in a kind of limited edition letterpress book that also were illustrated by Kara Walker, um, who received the poems and then sort of made silhouettes in response. And they're really beautiful. Um, and so we picked one of those, um, the first line of which is Someone Leans Near. Um, and before we get going, um, as always, we are so appreciative of everyone who has rated us and reviewed us. Um, it's helped so much get us new listeners. These past few months have been some of our, uh, biggest months in terms of listens and downloads and all that, uh, statistical stuff. And if you haven't, you can take a second, give us a little five stars, write us a little, uh, write us a little review. It would mean a lot. It does mean a lot. It's really nice. That's really nice. Um, yeah. So I mean, there's so much more to say about Toni Morrison and this poem, um, but why don't we just uh, read it and then we we'll, we can get into all that. Sounds good. It's called Someone Leans Near by Toni Morrison. Someone leans near and sees the salt your eyes have shed. You wait, longing to hear words of reason, love or play to lash or lull you toward the hollow day. Silence needs your fear of crumbled star ash sifting down, clouding the rooms here, here. You shore up your heart to run, to stay, but no sign or design marks the narrow way. Then on your skin, a breath caresses the salt your eyes have shed. And you remember a call clear, so clear, you will never die again. Once more you know 
you will never die again. Whew. And we should note in the line that says silence needs your fear, that's need like bread, not need like I need this to happen now. But I'm sure that the sonic doubleness there is intentional. I just, to be that good at poetry <laughs> is like not surprising when she's so incredibly good at novels and criticism and essays and like every speech she ever gave was amazingly written too. Like it's not really surprising that she'd be great at poetry too, but to just rock up and be that good at a like a type of writing that you don't really do and to be good sort of within that on its own you know like the ways that this poem is good are like poetry good it's not just <laughs> you know like yeah i feel like it's not just a good poem it's also good at poetry yeah in a way that is just shocking <laughs> And yeah. like not shocking at the same time because she's just so good, but like I I can't words around it well yeah. because it's so good. <laughs> no, I mean you're totally right. And to be clear, I mean many people have said this and I agree. I feel like she's the best writer that I've ever read, and maybe it's one of the best writers ever. Period. Absolutely. The way that um, but, she just crafts language is astounding in yeah. like everything. I, yeah, I read her Nobel laureate speech again shortly after her passing and it oh, is yeah. so good. And it's again, it's like speech good. It does the thing that good speeches <laughs> do, but it does it better than most speeches because she wrote it. So of course it was better. Like, <laughs> It's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. Probably the best writer and language sculptor I have encountered. Yeah, but I know what you mean. Like, um, oftentimes, like, you know, it's it's rare to see poetry by someone who's mostly known for fiction, but there are probably more examples of poets who have written fiction or novels or something. Um, and many of them are very good. And many of them are good in a, terms of a novel. But a lot of them are sometimes it's like, clearly, this is a poet writing a novel. And like, um, you know, the certain... Like, sometimes I read those novels and I'm like, it's basically a 300-page poem, and like a 300-page prose poem. And it's great, but it's like, you know, in terms of the genre conventions, it doesn't, it's not even like knowing the rules to break them. It's just kind of like doing something. Mm -hmm. But with, but as you were saying, like here, like this is a, this is a poem that knows it's a poem that respects the whatever the form that it's in, you know, and um yeah, and it's just it's really great. Um before we get too deep into it, we often do 
play-by-play um, just to get ourselves grounded in the work. And for this one, basically we have this you, this second person who is kind of like the subject of the poem. It's, it's, it feels like one of those things where the you is actually the I in a way, um, or the speaker. And it begins with someone nearby noticing that the you has been crying. Um, and the, you know, as, as the next couple stanzas progress, we learn that the you is sort of waiting for some kind of solace, um, you know, longing to hear words of reason, love, or play to lash or lull you toward the holiday. Um, and is feeling, you know, fear, um, about something we don't quite know what yet, perhaps, um, is trying to gather strength, you know, you shore up your heart to run, but is kind of at a loss, you know, uh, no sign or design marks the narrow way. Um, and then there's kind of the turn in the poem, then on your skin, a breath caresses the salt your eyes have shed. Um, and the speaker or the you remembers someone saying or, you know, some phrase, you will never die again. Um, and then the speaker kind of internalizes that um, by the end. And it's it's like once more, you know, you will never die again. And so by the end, I, I sort of feel like um, and again, I this is perhaps, it, you know, it's on the nose. Um, given the moment, uh, and in a similar way to the episode we did on W.S. Merwin, uh, his poem, and on the anniversary of my death. Um, but we sort of get the sense by the end that perhaps this is a you who's facing death um, or is, you know, approaching old age and thinking about mortality um, and is kind of like, you know, afraid and unsure what to do about that. <laughs> I concur. And I have a question for you in the okay. uh, interest of further grounding. Do you know where this poem comes from? Depending on what you're asking, I have one answer, which may not be what you were asking. But I was doing some reading about it. The, the quote at the end, you will never die again. Um appears to be a reference to and I'm I there's a great scholarly article about these the five poems that Toni Morrison published um and this the last line echoes the um I think it's gnostic scripture um thunder perfect mind uh which was like some kind of long religious poem written uh like before 350 ce or something like that um but the end of the poem goes and they will find me there and they will live and they will not die again um and this is kind of like you know um or the the crude reading of that poem is like 
finding sort of eternal life in, um, you know, either in the afterlife or like in the mind or something like or the spirit or something like that. <laughs> no, that was related to my question. Um, okay. And that is very interesting. But where this poem was used by Toni Morrison and what I believe the poem uh, is responding to, she put it in the. It usually gets categorized as a play, but it's kind of more than that, because there's also this woman who is a singer songwriter who is involved. It's in Desdemona, which is this work that she did that is basically about the fourth act of Othello, where Desdemona is essentially waiting to get killed by Othello. She doesn't necessarily know that, but it's like this very dread-filled part of the play where anyone who's familiar with the text knows that's what's coming. Anyone who's not familiar still probably gets a strong sense of foreboding. And in that, Desdemona references and then sings parts of this song that comes up a couple times called the Willow Song. It's a sad old song there's records of it kind of outside the play and like essentially the content of the song is about like people in love and maybe they're cheating on each other and like it's kind of giving the audience the sense that the jealousy that's been going on is going to have a deadly end for desdemona who's singing it and this work is sort of written as a response to that in some ways is what i have have read so, and in fact, so... in the Willow song, there is a piece of it that says the fresh streams ran by her and murmured her moans, sing Willow, Willow, Willow. Her salt tears fell from her and softened the stones. The main difference between the poem as it appears in Desdemona and as it appears where it was published is that all of the yous are eyes and me's in Desdemona. But that is that is the other thing that this poem I think is sort of contextualized by is its relationship to the character of Desdemona and the existence of the Willow Song in Act Four, Scene Three of Othello. Interesting. Okay, so wow, that is fascinating. So the play, just looking at it, was first produced in 2011. Yeah, it postdates the original publication of the poem. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's either either she'd been working on the play for a long time, or she had written the poem and then incorporated it into the play. I um, would guess that she'd at the very least been I probably thinking about Othello and particularly Desdemona for a long time. She'd been working on this project, a research project, and she read about a slave who had killed her child so that it wouldn't grow up enslaved. And that, in many ways, sort of began, you know, percolating, I guess, as working towards what eventually became beloved. So, wow. Well, that would give it a very different lilt. Um, you know, seen in the context of, like, reading it autobiographically, you know, uh, if 2002, 
She must have been 70-ish, yeah. I think. Yep. Um, we could think of it as someone facing death as, like, old age, mortality, but seen in the perspective of Desdemona, then we see it as, like, I know bad things are coming for me in a certain kind of way. Um, and I'm fearing for my life. And Desdemona is like a teenager in the play. She's, she's very young. Oh man. That is such a great play. And that is very disturbing. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, interesting. Well, Okay. I don't for me at least it didn't change my experience of reading the poem all that much because I felt like the feelings when I read through it it's just a sense of like the foreboding that accompanies any serious contemplation of death that I feel like the texture can change with age but the actual sort of experience the fundamental part of it is very similar yeah I think that's right um I think that's right and the kind of intimacy that it starts off with is, again, just kind of a similar human thing. And the texture of it can change a little bit depending on who you think is saying it. But, you know, an opening line like someone leans near and sees the salt your eyes have shed. Essentially, someone's close to your face and can see that you've been crying. And that even independent of age is such a strong experience to relate. And the way that the language shows it to you is so forceful that I find my experience of it being pretty similar, even independent of those different sort of contextual pieces. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how, um, and this is drawing a little bit from the, the article I read, but the the kind of speaker is is um, hoping for comfort or some kind of understanding, and it's like through the this other person who's like characterized very vaguely and kind of weirdly, you know, um, it's a someone, it's not maybe a total stranger. Um, is leaning near and sees, you know, that you've been crying. And then the next, the only other, like when, and then there's the, the moment, like when the turn happens, then on your skin, a breath caresses the salt, your, your, the salt, your eyes have shed. Um, a breath, you know, which is like about as, like faint a human connection can be in some ways um and then finally the speaker remembers a a a call which is the you know you will never die again um so there's a memory of you know someone else uh saying this or potentially if it's they're actually remembering you know the gnostic verse or whatever which i'm I'm not sure it's that direct a reference, but um, it could just be some other encounter with with language. Um, but I was curious, you know, like what 
I don't know what you, you know, so I, I feel like it's clear that the, the speaker, you know, like comes to some kind of comfort or understanding by the end of the poem through this understanding that, you know, once more, you know, you will never die again. And I guess the, the two things that I was wondering about is like, what does you will never die again mean, I guess? And then the other is like, why, what does the other or the presence of another or another's voice like, why does that sort of lead to such an understanding or something like that? I don't know if that's a well-formulated question, but. Yeah, it is interesting because there is this sense of, I guess, acceptance at the end that partially comes through that feeling of the repetition of you will never die again, because that's still essentially saying you're going to die, which is terrifying. Um, and the whole poem is infused with this like fear and tension because um, the someone, as you were saying, like unnamed sort of an unknown quantity because the you is waiting to hear what they do. And it's literally tension. You shore up your heart to run to stay. That's fight or flight reflex. And to have that ending give you the repeated, you will never die again. Is that like resignation? Is that, I yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure because it didn't feel like it fully diffused the tension that had been built up to that point it felt like that tension remained because you also like you remember a call clear so clear and then in quotations it says you will never die again and i know those quotations are referencing the remembered call but my immediate image that i created is of this someone leaning over the speaker saying to them you will never die again which in that context feels like a threat and it's almost in those next lines that threat is transformed by being repeated. Even though I know it's not actually a threat, it's a remembered call. But in some ways, I think what I was seeing is the speaker putting those words into the mouth of the someone who is near. But yeah, I, yeah, I was a little puzzled about where exactly to go because my immediate feeling I don't know. I mean, maybe you're supposed to be left with that tension because there is no resolution to a real contemplation of of death <laughs> or its potential proximity because the someone leaning near doesn't have to be a literal someone. It can be just the presence of death or the unknown or dying or illness in a sort of cliched reading. It could be a Grim Reaper type figure. You know, someone is close to you while you're in in this distress. But I don't know. It definitely leaves a note of like partial but not complete resolution that I found. It felt like it fit really well with the poem, but it does retain that unsettling quality, which leaves it a little bit like mm, I want a want a nice clean way to end this. I want a story to tell myself that makes this less uh, less tense that would also be less true so maybe not yeah that's really interesting you gave me a thought 
that I have to postpone until my other thought because that one has to come first. Here's the thing. So, well, there were two in this article and I didn't want, I'm not doing the thing where I have an answer and I'm not telling you it because I'm I already bad. did that this episode. <laughs> so you can't do it too. That's true. You did. But I you did, did do that, that in a very um leading way. It was clear that you knew no. you had an answer. Mm. Um but I didn't bring it up because I'm not sure that I agree with these responses and so I wanted to hear what you were saying. But like the 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 um Lee who wrote this this scholarly article about the poems is talking about this um, someone leans near so like they're talking about how it the the line you will never die again moves from being in quotes to not being in quotes and how sort of the you has internalized its meaning um but then the ultimate message of and they they are comparing it to the thunder perfect mind that gnostic text um the ultimate message of that text and the someone of the poem is the same Quote, death is an illusion. And then um, later says um, that the subject of the poem in this in this poem understands her immortality through the caring presence of another. Although this you is physically alone, she derives comfort and courage from the memory of another. Death presents no obstacle to the vibrancy of the living. Um, and then in the, so this, you know, I encountered these five poems um, on the Believer, um, which is a great um, online site and journal. Uh, and they had um, posted these poems and had written some notes about them. And, uh, Jericho Brown, who's the poetry editor there, um, said this about, you know, all five poems. So not specifically this one, but it seemed to be definitely thinking about this poem. So Brown says, her work in verse seems over and again to show us a woman facing death and facing it with all the life she can. It's as if she knows who she is and that in that knowing her declarations here will live forever. So there's two kinds of sentiments of this like immortality kind of sense, which I can get from the meaning of you will never die again, as in like in a way you've already died or something. Maybe it's your physical death or whatever. And now you're immortal or something. Um and I can see a compelling way to read that in terms of, you know, especially now considering Morrison's legacy and just like the enduring nature of her work um, and how like, um, you know, there was this, it was, uh, it was the one, you know, uh, scrolling through the Twitterverse and there were many, you know, pretty poignant things about Morrison <laughs> and someone had retweeted the dictionary.com 
tweet, which was actually just so perfect. Uh, but the tweet was, beloved noun, a person who is greatly loved. Um, and I thought that was a very beautiful tribute. That's wonderful. Uh, but it made me think again of, you know, rethinking of the, the word beloved and the the way that the person is defined in that context as they're being loved by another or many others. Um, and this sense that the memory and the care of other people, um, you know, is what can make someone endure or live on um, in certain ways. And I think, you know, you would, you could argue is what makes a person live in when they're alive. Anyway, so like, I guess I can see what Stephanie Lee, the scholar saying, the critic, um, and I can see what Jericho Brown is saying, but at the same time, as you were kind of pointing out, there's this unresolved tension and there seems to be another way of reading it, of reading that last line, you will never die again, which is like, once you die, that's it. Like, that's the last time you die kind of thing. Um, and that there's a finality to that and a finality to death, which is sort of unlike, you know, everything else in life, you know. Um, you know, I think what was uh, Morrison said, like the meaning of life may be death. We die, uh, that may be the meaning of life, but we do language, uh, that may be the measure of life. I think that's measure, the quote yeah. taken. The only reason I know that is because I reread her Nobel laureate speech, and it's from <laughs> that speech. Yeah, and so, okay, this finally brings me to my thought that I had that I had to wait which was you were talking about wanting the satisfying kind of neat or conclusive ending and not having it. And it's so interesting because I was um, just thinking about the, the form of the poem, which there's a lot to talk about. But, you know, sometimes we talk about um, like – I don't know if we've used these terms, but perfect and imperfect poems or closed and open poems. Um, and, you know, there's, I think I, there's an essay by Luis Glick who talks about that um, and how she prefers the imperfect and the open poems. Um, but if you think of like a traditional sonnet, you know, that like has the, the rhyming couplet at the end and there's a the beginning, there's like an argument and then or like something like in the one Shakespeare thing that I <laughs> always quote that time of year thou mayest to me behold, which is like I'm dying and you know that I'm dying, and then at the end is like, you perceive that I'm dying, you know, um, this thou perceivest, 
which makes my which makes thy love grow strong, you know, to love that which must leave ere long or something. And so the the conclusion, which is like, you see that I'm dying and therefore you love me, has a you know, a conclusiveness to it, right? It's it closes off the problems that were raised in the beginning. Um, and in that way, you can say that's a closed poem or that's a perfect poem kind of thing. Um, and what's interesting about this poem is like it has so many hallmarks of what a perfect or a closed poem would be. Um, it's not in a traditional like form like a sonnet, but, um, you know, the 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 rhymes and the repetitions are very pronounced. Um, you know, you have, um, like there's a ear rhyme that happens throughout the poem. Someone leans near, you wait longing to hear silence needs your fear. Um, you remember or clouding the rooms here, here, you remember a call clear, so clear, um, there's also like end rhymes that happen, you know, like one after another, like a couplet. Um, you wait longing to hear and then words of reason, love or play to lash or lull you toward the hollow day. Um, you shore up your heart to run, to stay, but no sign or design marks the narrow way. So that play, day, stay, way. Um, then there's also you know, these two moments of like repeating a word like uh, in the same line. So clouding the rooms here, here, uh, and then, and you remember a call clear, so clear. Um, and then finally, just to like list all the repetitions and the rhymes so we can, you know, get a kind of sense of the texture is there's two there's two lines that repeat basically identically um so and someone leans near and sees the salt your eyes have shed um and then then on your skin a breath caresses then on your skin a breath caresses the salt your eyes have shed um so the salt your eyes have shed ha repeats and notably that repeats um for the turn um and then finally we have and you remember a call clear so clear quote you will never die again once more you know you will never die again um and especially ending with that exact repetition of a line you know it sonically feels very closed, you know, like the the rhymes are such a, you know, a pleasing way to end it, and it feels like tight like a bow kind of thing. Um, and so there's this, like, I feel like in the poem, part of you is like, you know, we've got all this repetition, and it leads into this, like, sort of this line that repeats so close together. Um, and so it feels like we're reaching some kind of final conclusion. That's um, fantastic. And I like both your thoughts because the first thought, which is such a much more 
generous and upbeat reading than the direction I instinctually went in, and that might say a lot more about me than the poem, because I also thought the Ted Kuzer poem we talked about a little while ago, Abandoned Farmhouse, was very creepy, and we had a listener tell us they thought it was not creepy, so maybe this is a me thing. Um, but I love the idea that You Will Never Die Again isn't like, this is as bad as it gets, but this is just one thing that you do, and death is part of life, and like, it's not going to happen again, but, you know, so what else do you expect? You're not going to get born again either. But I do really like that more generous sort of take on on that ending, and I think I will adopt it myself because... I like to be positive and I, and I really do. I feel like that's more the direction the poem probably wants to go in, um, in terms of where it's moving. Uh, and I really like what you were discussing with the formal moves because the sounds are so tight throughout the poem. Cause even the lines that don't have those end rhymes, like then on your skin, a breath caresses. Um, but those last lines are the ones where after that, uh, and you remember a call clear so clear where that calls back to where the hears are repeated and also the other ear with near here fear throughout the rest of the poem after that the repeated sounds from the rest of the poem are gone and we've talked before and in fact i'm pretty sure there's a joke in the uh othello scene that does this for emphasis where there's a full rhyme at the end like a, a, a regular couplet at the end of a poem that'll hit hard rhymes to give that exact feeling of if not resolution completion i think when they're talking about infidelity as a joke to desdemona the woman she's talking to they're talking about like would you basically like cheat on your husband for the entire world and she's like "Ooh, so great a price for so small a vice uh and desdemona's <laughs> like nah i wouldn't cheat on othello he's the best anyway uh, the fact that that like sonic tightness starts to move away a little bit, even though the lines are repeated, so it's still very formally constrained in that way. The sort of really tight crafting of uh, the sounds starts to expand a little bit and is and is lost, uh, which I feel like contributes to that unresolved perfect versus imperfect poem like more of that imperfect poem feel which is kind of kind of cool i like it yeah oh that's a really good point i like that a lot um yeah and also just there's so many this is just a separate but like uh i love to lash or lull you oh, toward yeah. the hollow day it's so good yeah. partly because i love thinking about like those are the two like desired outcomes of like how to get you through the day is like either to be like <laughs> pacified by like to be lulled by words of reason or to be like lashed into you know get you know to get yourself going <laughs> or whatever um there's a kind of like interesting violence there mm -hmm. um and it, it did make me think of like I mean, this is probably too reading into autobiographical, but just a sense of, you know, having, you know, obviously I cannot speak as I am still of man, a man of relative, though waning youth. Um, oh, dear. That 
you know, in old age, it's more common to have a lot of time for the day to be full of time in a, in a kind of way, like, and a question of how to fill it, you know, um, and that, that's kind of what I was thinking about, like what the image that came to me when I, when I read hollow day, um, like a kind of empty day, um, and needing something to like get you going or like stop you from thinking about it, you know, to lull you or whatever. Should we read it again? I think we should read it again. Someone leans near and sees the salt your eyes have shed. You wait, longing to hear words of reason, love or play to lash or lull you toward the hollow day. Silence needs your fear of crumbled star ash sifting down, clouding the rooms here, here. You shore up your heart to run, to stay. But no sign or design marks the narrow way. Then on your skin a breath caresses the salt your eyes have shed. And you remember a call clear, so clear, you will never die again. Once more you know you will never die again. Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest close talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, we're also available in addition to iTunes on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.